Ephesians chapter 4 is where we're going to be. I'm going to give you a briefer review than what I thought I would get give because there's no way I can get through this material, and we're not going to go very far. Uh, we'll cover a little bit of material, and I'll do the best I can to try to bring some balance to all that could possibly be said in just a couple short verses. But the big picture of Ephesians is this. In the first three chapters, Paul is extolling God's saving grace in Christ Jesus. The new person that you are, if you are a Christian, the new person that you are in Christ is because of God's grace. And that is just uh, expounded upon and it explodes in those first three chapters. It is what God and only God can do. Then, in chapters 4 to 6... Paul exhorts believers to walk accordingly, that is, to walk differently. Chapter 4, verse 1 talks about walking in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called. In light of what God has done, here's how you should live if you are a Christian. It can't make you a Christian, but it's because of God's grace you live differently. We are specifically in chapter 4, verse 25 through uh, verse 32, the end of the chapter. If you're using a pew Bible, you're going to find this on page 978. There's a series of instructions or exhortations or admonitions. Here's what your walk as a Christian should look like. And so it breaks down like this. Starts off in verse 25. Therefore, having put away falsehood, let each one of you speak the truth with his neighbor. For we are members one of another. And one of the things you're going to see, and I'm going to move pretty quick as I can through this review part. I'll probably move pretty quick even after that. But one of the things you're going to see is this idea of putting off and putting on. Don't do this. Do this instead. Don't live a life of falsehood. Rather, speak the truth. Not this, but that. Now, the next instruction kind of breaks that pattern, but for the most part, that's going to be the pattern in these instructions, how you should walk. Not this, but that. The second command, be angry and do not sin, and do not let the sun go down on your anger, and give no opportunity to the devil. Let the thief no longer steal, but rather let him labor, doing honest work with his own hands, so that he may have something to share with anyone in need. Next, let no corrupting talk come out of your mouths, but only such as is good for building up, as fits the occasion, that it may give grace to those who hear. Now, last week I had verse 30 as separate. I've since come to believe that that's incorrect that and really connects it with verse 29. So, and do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God, which I think is directly connected to corrupting talk. When we engage in corrupting talk, we are grieving the Holy Spirit. I don't think that's the only way to grieve the Holy Spirit. But in Paul's context, that's what he's talking about. The things I say can grieve the Holy Spirit, by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. And then he closes with, let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you, along with all malice. And then instead, be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another as God in Christ forgave you. Now, last week we did the first one in verse 25, the idea of of living a life of truth and not falsehood. I'm not going to 
review everything there. You can go back and listen to the audio message if that's uh, of interest to you for whatever reason that you may have. But the things I picked out as this is what uh, is included in a life of falsehood. This is what falsehood looks like. It includes white lies, half-truths, false impressions, gossip, misleading exaggerations. All of that falls under the umbrella of don't do that. Be honest, transparent, truthful in the community of God's people, especially. And I could have just left it at that, except this week I I decided to look and see what William Barclay would say about something like this. He uh, died in 1978. He's very devotional in his writings. Uh, like anybody, there are some things, I think some areas where he is really quite off on. He's really not given to the miraculous. Uh, he really tries to downplay what I think are plain miracles in Scripture. He tries to explain those away, so that's a, a, a fault. But he's very insightful in a lot of other ways. And he added something else to this idea of what is falsehood that we can gravitate to, that we can be guilty of. He made this statement, there's also the lie of silence. There is also the lie of silence. That's part of falsehood. That is, there are times where something ought to be said, and we're living a lie when we don't say it, when we don't speak the truth, when we don't... uh, Well, I'll have a thought about courage here in just a moment. I think uh, an illustration of this, even though it's actually not an episode where there was silence, but it, it I think, at least uh, illustrates what William Barclay means by there's the lie of silence, and I would point to Peter's denial of Jesus in the courtyard. Now, he verbally said, I don't know him, three times. But long before that happened, he should have owned up to the fact that he was a disciple of Jesus. And so what he said is the way that sometimes I can live where I betray what I know to be true and I don't speak up what is true. And that's living a life of falsehood. Uh, When I give an impression due to my silence when something ought to be spoken. When I was at the Truth for Every Man conference with a couple others, one of the things that one of the pastors at uh, Southern View said, and I don't know if it was original with, with him or whether he'd pulled it from somebody, because I thought it was very insightful. And I keep thinking one of these times when I changed the church sign, maybe something I put on one of the sides. He made the statement, fear is a reaction, courage is a choice. And I thought that's, that's a pretty powerful statement as well. Uh, courage is a choice where you speak the truth when it would be easier to react to the circumstances or situation and just not say anything. And that's a life of falsehood when you know the truth to be something different from what everybody else is believing or acting as if it is true. But that's last week. Let's move on to this week. In verse 26, it reads, Be angry and do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your anger and give no opportunity to the devil. Now, this is one of those verses. It's the most controversial of of these series of admonitions at the end of chapter 4. It It doesn't have the balance that most of the other commands have where Paul says, don't do this, but do this instead. So it lacks the balance. It lacks the symmetry. It's a little bit more confusing. It's a little bit more debatable when he talks about this idea of anger. So there's basically two positions. 
One is, is Paul actually commanding anger? And the alternate position is, or is Paul only acknowledging anger as a part of the human experience and then deliver warnings and boundaries? If you have a New International Version, it actually translates it. Instead of be angry, it says, in your anger, do not sin. So the way the NIV reads, it's, it's only acknowledging it's part of our human experience. You will get angry and Paul then follows it up with, but don't sin. Like, we're all prone to it. Let's all admit it. Let's all, let's not pretend none of us get upset about anything. But in your anger, when it happens, don't let it lead to sin. Those are the two possibilities. The second possibility is, is uh, presented really well by Brant Hansen's book, Unoffendable, which has sold really well. I've got a, an earlier copy, but when I pulled this picture off the internet, uh, this one says over 200,000 copies sold. It's a, uh, it's an easy read. Brent Hansen is a delightful author. Uh, he presents a very strong case for Paul is merely saying, acknowledging you will get angry, but don't sin when you do. That would be Brent Hansen's case. And he makes a lot of really good points. Probably I'll go through a few of them. One of the first points that is usually uh, presented for this position is in verse 31, Paul says, let all bitterness and wrath and anger, that anger is the same word as here, let all anger be put away from you. So the argument would be in verse 31, Paul makes it very clear, there's no room for anger. You need to avoid it at all costs. But I recognize there's times you will get angry And when those times come, don't sin. That would be the balance that is presented there. It would be, if I were to illustrate uh, Brent Hansen's position, I don't know that he uses this illustration because I didn't reread the book this last week, but I think an illustration he might have used would be in Genesis chapter 4, two brothers who present their offerings to God. One is Cain and one is Abel. And Abel presents an, an animal from his herd to the Lord, and the Lord finds that offering acceptable and pleasing. And Cain presents an offering from his uh, garden, from what he's produced from the, the, the soil, and the Lord does not receive that offering. The Lord isn't pleased with Cain's offering, those two brothers. And so it tells me in Genesis chapter 4, so Cain was very angry and his face fell. He and his brother both presented offerings. I don't know if it's, you know, side by side. Each one's looking over the shoulder at the other. I don't know exactly what that scene looked like, but they both presented an offering. One was acceptable, one was not. One was not. I think there's reasons for that. But at any rate, Cain was very angry. And the Lord speaks to Cain and he tells Cain, among other things, I just put on the screen what I can fit. He tells Cain, if you do not... If you do not do well, sin is crouching at the door. Its desire is contrary to you, but you must rule over it. The Lord acknowledges, Cain, you're angry, but don't let it lead you into sin. Don't let it destroy you. Don't let it become a poison in your heart. And we know from the next thing that happens is Genesis chapter 4, but in fact, it does lead to sin. He winds up killing his brother. 
But that's the same warning that some would say Paul is saying in verses 26 and 27. Look, you're going to get angry. Sin is crouching at the door. Satan is only too quick to let that emotion of anger seize you and lead you into sin. And Paul's saying, don't let it happen. Don't let it happen. Now, what about the idea of righteous anger? Brent Hansen clearly deals with this idea of righteous anger. And uh, he acknowledges there is such a thing as righteous anger. And he acknowledges the fact that Jesus exhibited righteous anger. There are two occasions in the Gospels where he cleanses the temple. One time, it seems, uh, from the language, he, he just very uh, in control, uh, fashions a whip. And then he drives out the money changers and those who are selling uh, animals within the courtyards. And the word anger isn't used in those passages, but it would seem that in those two episodes, it is a righteous anger, a righteous indignation. So Brian Hansen would say, uh, there is such a thing as righteous anger, and Jesus clearly demonstrated it. But the key point here is, you're not Jesus, and I'm not Jesus either. And so my anger can never be righteous as Jesus's was because my motives are always tainted by myself. They're always tainted by my own sin. I can deceive myself in this is right and appropriate and good, but I'm not Jesus. And so because I'm not Jesus, while it's appropriate for him to display righteous indignation, it is inappropriate for me and I ought to avoid it at all costs because it will only lead me to not a good place. That would be Brent Hansen's position. However, the predominant historic viewpoint maintains Paul is calling for proper and rightful anger. That's the majority opinion. I think it's right. I think Brent Hansen does an excellent job warning about all the dangers, because it's more dangerous than what we probably care to admit, But in fact, I think the majority historic opinion is right. Now, the fact that it's the majority doesn't make it right. The fact that it's historic doesn't make it right. Those would both be fallacies. If I can say, this position uh, goes back further in church history, therefore it must be right, that doesn't really prove it. Uh, The fact that I would say more people believe there is a time for righteous anger, that doesn't prove it either. So I do have to kind of make a case a little bit. But this is the historic position. There are four commands in verses 26 and 27. The first command is, and it's an imperative in the Greek. The command is, be angry. That's a command. Followed up by three more commands. Do not sin. Followed up by, do not let the sun go down on your anger. Followed up by the command, and give no opportunity to the devil. There are four commands... In those two short verses. Each one is a command including be angry. The exegetical commentary of the New Testament. This summarizes probably the majority opinion best in just a very simple way. It reads this way. Paul regards anger as a proper and even essential emotion. At the same time, however, he considers it highly volatile and dangerous. Anger should not be an ongoing characteristic of one's life, but rather should be felt and expressed on certain occasions. Now, I think 
and I didn't really know if or when I would even include this in our in what I have to say. But it reminds me, this command, be angry, it reminds me of, of the love of money as the root of all evil or the root of sin. And, and it's easy to know that that's the command. The love of money is the root of all evil. And it's easy for all of us, however much money any one of us has, to think, well, thankfully, I'm not guilty of that sin. I don't love money. Uh, when in fact... I think if we were to examine our hearts really close, we would find out there's lots of ways in which we exhibit a lo- an unhealthy attraction or love of money. It's easy to, once I give you the excuse or I give myself the excuse, there is such a thing as righteous anger. All of a sudden, whenever I exhibit my anger, it's, it's generally the right thing to do. As opposed to recognizing there are three commands that pray, place limitations and boundaries and warn me that that anger is very destructive, it's very corrosive, it's very volatile, volatile, more than I probably recognize or am willing to admit. Let's move forward. I find this statement to be true. It can be a sin not to find your temper as much as it can be a sin to lose your temper. That would be the premise I'm operating off of. It's, most of us would recognize if you've lost your temper, you've sinned. I would counter it's just as much a sin if you don't find your temper, if it's appropriate. I think both are true. There is an error on both sides, and, and probably most of us are more apt to lose our temper inappropriately than to keep our temper when it ought to be aroused up. But both are errors. Let's develop this a little bit. I'm going to say a given is God's wrath and anger. Uh, I'm not going to try to defend that. I'm going to assume you've read the Bible. I'm going to assume you've read in the Old Testament, the wrath of God is displayed. I'm going to assume you've read the New Testament, the wrath of God is displayed. And from Genesis to, well, actually, the first time where God's wrath is aroused, I think, would be in Exodus. But in Revelation, it's clearly there as well. But that's a given. Uh, God's wrath reflects his perfect character. It's a part of who God is. It is always right. But the real place where we need to look at is Jesus' anger, because he was made like we are, yet without sin. Uh, he had a, He became a man. He was truly human. So let me tell you, let me give you the examples of Jesus' anger and wrath. Number one in the parables. We did the parables in Good News Club. There are several parables where Jesus tells a parable where a king, and that king represents God, his father, in the parable. The king's wrath is aroused because somebody has squandered their gifts. Or they have beaten and killed the uh, the king's servants. Or they have beaten and killed the king's son. And in each one of those cases, in each one of those parables, the wrath of the king is aroused. Jesus tells parables describing that wrath. I've already mentioned the clearing of the temple two times, where the word wrath isn't used, but it seems evident to me that anger is one of the emotions of Jesus as he's clearing the temple. A third example would be men's hard-heartedness. This is a passage we read, and I can't remember entirely why we read it a few weeks ago, but we did. In Genesis, or, uh, Mark chapter 3, I will reread these verses to you. 
But I don't have time to uh, have you all look them up. Unless you're quick at, quick at the fingers on your Bibles, you can do that. Mark chapter 3, it reads like this. Again, Jesus entered the synagogue and a man was there with a withered hand. And they watched Jesus to see whether he would heal him on the Sabbath. So that they might accuse him. And he said to the man with the withered hand, come here. And he said to them who were watching, is it lawful on the Sabbath to do good or to do harm? To save life or to kill? And they were just like you. They had none to say. They were silent. And he looked around with anger. The word anger is used with Jesus in Mark chapter 3, verse 5. He looked around at them with anger, grieved at their hardness of heart, and told the man, stretch out your hand. So there was a, there's a clear example where it's not just implied, and I can guess from the circumstances. In Mark chapter 3, it says Jesus looked at them. They have nothing to say. They have no compassion. They only want to accuse Jesus, and Jesus looks at them with anger. You've got at Lazarus' tomb, Jesus was agitated or he was troubled. It's the same word that's used of Herod. There were King Herod in in Matthew chapter 2, where some wise men from the east came to Jerusalem and they were saying, where is he who was born king of the Jews? And Herod was troubled, agitated, and all Jerusalem with him. The same word that's used of Jesus at Lazarus' tomb. Lazarus has been buried now for several days. And Mary and Martha, his sisters, Lord, if you'd been here, my brother wouldn't have died. And Jesus is grieved and he's agitated and he's troubled. And he has him roll away the stone and he calls Lazarus out. In Matthew chapter 23, you've got Jesus issuing seven scathing woes against the scribes and the Pharisees. Uh, I think his anger is aroused In Matthew chapter 23, we're going to look at one of those instances in just a little bit. And then finally, in Revelation chapter 6, I read about the wrath of the Lamb has come. You don't normally associate wrath with a lamb. This lamb who is the lamb slain before the foundation of the world. This lamb who takes away the sin of the world. But the wrath of the lamb is aroused In Revelation chapter 6. So those are all examples of Jesus' anger. Is this attribute or characteristic of Jesus communicable or incommunicable? In other words, I think we can agree Jesus displayed wrath. Is that wrath something that is meant to be emulated or mimicked or, or part of our lives because He's our Lord and our Savior? Or are we to look at Jesus and say, that's fine for Jesus to do, but we should never do that. Is it something we're to emulate or just admire from a distance? I'm going to go with emulate. John Stott says this, a good Church of England Anglican in Britain, died in 2011. Wonderful books. Cross of Christ is probably his most famous book. John Stott puts it this way. Scripture plainly teaches there are two kinds of anger, righteous and unrighteous. In verse 31, anger is one of a number of unpleasant things which we are to put away from us. Put away all anger. Evidently, unrighteous anger is meant. But in chapter 5 and verse 6, 
We are told of the anger of God which will fall on the disobedient. And we know that God's anger is righteous. So is the anger of Jesus. There must therefore be a good and true anger which God's people can learn from him and from their Lord Jesus. Now he hasn't proven his case. I'm just telling you that's his position. I think he's right. I'm trying to prove the case as we move along. He goes on to say, I go further and say that there is a great need in the contemporary world for more Christian anger. I would want to clarify that a little bit. I would say there's a great need for the right kind of Christian anger more than what there is, and there needs to be less of the wrong kind of anger. We human beings compromise with sin in a way in which God never does. In the face of blatant evil, we should be indignant, not tolerant. We should be angry, not apathetic. If God hates sin, his people should hate it too. If evil arouses his anger, it should arouse ours also. Then he quotes the psalmist, Hot indignation seizes me because of the wicked who forsake your law. And he ends with a question, What other reaction can wickedness be expected to provoke in those who love God? Move forward again. In our shared human experience, what arouses anger? I don't know how many people are here, but I think if I said, if we played a game and had all the time in the world and said, I want everybody to give me something that arouses your anger, and it can't be what anybody else has already said, I think we could come up with that many reasons. Because there are lots of, I mean, anger is, there's a, there's a spectrum, right? There's annoyances, uh, there's things that kind of agitate us, there's other things that really arouse our anger. I mean, they're, they're higher on the scale, but the scale is broad. The scale is broad. Uh, If I think somebody uh, cut me off uh, in traffic, that's fairly high up on the scale. If I think somebody's somehow shortchanged me in in any number of ways, I'm agitated, I'm perturbed. I mean, my anger is, is kindled on some level. And on other ways, it could be kindled in a big way. Ultimately, though, there are three categories, three sources of your anger. And I think primary sources, I think it's got to be true for everybody here. Our anger is aroused when sins and injustices occur against oneself. Our anger is aroused when sins and injustices occur against others, people that we love, people that we care about. And our, our anger is aroused when sin and injustices occur against God. Those are the three sources of anger. I'm angry because I've been slighted. I'm angry because a family member who I love has been slighted. Or I may be angry because God has been slighted. Those are the three sources. So, to develop this, how did Jesus respond to each of those three areas of anger? Because how Jesus responded, if we're to live, be like Jesus, if we're to emulate that anger... How did Jesus respond to anger in those three primary categories? The first one, anger regarding himself, Peter explains it very well in his letter, 1 Peter chapter 2. In part, it reads like this. For to this you have been called, because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example 
so that you might follow in his steps. So we are to emulate this. He, Jesus, committed no sin. Neither was deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges judges justly. So how did Jesus respond to personal attack, personal uh, insult, personal being uh, reviled and threatened? He did not respond. He did not take that to heart. He did not let that fester in his soul. He entrusted himself to him who judges justly. That's how Jesus responded to injustice against himself. Secondly, how did Jesus respond to injustice against others? Matthew chapter 18 is a perfect example. How did he respond to injustice done against others? It reads in part like this. Jesus said, whoever causes the downfall of one of these little ones who believe in me, it would be better for him if a heavy millstone were hung around his neck and he were drowned in the depths of the sea. Woe to the world because of offenses, for offenses must come, but woe to that man by whom the offense comes. Now, with regard to himself, Jesus did not revile in, in, in return. He did not curse Receive a curse, he dishes out a curse. You insult me, I'm going to insult you. That's not the way he responded. But with regard to one of these little ones whom he cares deeply about, he upped the ante. He said it would be better that a millstone hung around his neck and he'd be thrown into the depths of the sea than the fate that awaits him because of the way he's treated one of these little ones. I think of the way that Jesus treated the woman that was brought to him and taken in adultery. He responded with compassion towards her because it was a hypocritical setup situation. That's in John chapter 8, I think it is. But let's go to the third one. How did Jesus respond to injustices done against God, against heaven? Matthew chapter 23 is that passage where Jesus has the seven woes pronounced upon the scribes and the Pharisees. The first couple woes are, I think, the most interesting. They read like this. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you shut the kingdom of heaven in people's faces, for you neither enter yourselves nor allow those who would enter to go in. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you travel across sea and land to make a single proselyte. And when he becomes a proselyte, you make him twice as much a child of hell as yourself. I mean, the meek and mild... The gentle and lowly Jesus had strong words when there was injustice done against the weak and when God was mischaracterized and his goodness and his grace and his salvation. He pronounced these types of woes. So, how do I respond in each of those three areas? If I'm honest, most of the the things that upset me, oftentimes the most, are the things that are an affront to myself. It's not so much that I think somebody else has been treated unjustly. The things I typically most commonly get upset about are the things that are upsetting to me. Because I've been slighted. Because I'm not being treated the way I deserve. And if I'm following Jesus' example, I should let it go. And if I were Disney, I could sing the song.
but I'm not. Is that what you were thinking? That's what I thought. So let's talk a little bit more about righteous anger. This is uh, from the 1900s, the Speaker's Bible set of books I have, a bunch of thought sermons uh, from the early ni- from a good hundred years ago. He writes this, whoever the author was, because it's a collection of authors, which is hard to figure out who said what. Half the social evil of our day is due to the fact that drunkenness and fornication, or its suggestion, are matters not of our national anger, but of our national jokes. Instead of thinking them disgusting and avoiding them, we regard them as trivialities, which God knows they are not. If we were rightly angry over them, when we met them, the stink of our cities would not rise to heaven today. That's a hundred years ago. I can't even imagine what he would write if he, if he saw our cities today. Speakers by, or William Barclay says this, The world would have lost much without the blazing anger of William Wilberforce against the slave trade of the British Empire, or of Lord Shaftesbury against the working conditions of the 19th century. Uh, William Barclay is suggesting that those are two good examples of a righteous anger that motivated people to right a wrong. It wasn't that William Wilberforce was a slave, or Lord Shaftesbury uh, was, uh, you know, being worked to death in some uh, industrial revolution, but rather they recognized an injustice outside of them, and their anger was kindled enough to want to make a difference. Gentle and lowly. Um, I've got a book of a box of books up here. I don't know how many copies are up there. There's probably 30 copies of this book, Gentle and Lowly. So if you are interested in reading this book. Uh, and you want a free copy, they're up in the front uh, pew there. Gentle and Lowly makes an excellent point. It was was actually Christianity Today's Book of the Year a couple years ago, which probably doesn't say much because they're not the best judge of what a good book is, but they weren't entirely wrong in this case. Gentle and Lowly by Dane Ortland. He writes, Perhaps we feel that to the degree we emphasize Christ's compassion... We neglect his anger. And to the degree we emphasize his anger, we neglect his compassion. So we've got, we've kind of got a choice. Are you going to err on the side of compassion? Or are you going to err on the side of anger? Like, how do you balance those two? And he makes a statement, which is my takeaway from the book. He makes a statement, which is why you, if you read books at all, this might be a really good book to read, especially it's free. He makes this statement. But what we must see is that compassion and anger rise and fall together. They are not two ends of the spectrum. It's not if you are given to compassion, you won't be angry. It's not if you're given to anger that you won't be compassionate. They rise and they fall at the same time in the Bible. And that's a, that was a thought I hadn't thought before. And I consider it somewhat profound. He explains it this way. A compassionless Christ could never have gotten angry at the injustices all around him. The severity and human barbarity, even that flowing from the religious elite. Christ was gentle and lowly. And because he was, he was angry at the injustice done by religious leaders. At the way that the oppressed and the widows were exploited 
the way the poor were exploited. He was angry because he was compassionate. He then goes on to quote, make one more statement. He quotes B.B. Warfield, which was a famous theologian, I think, from one of the Ivy schools, but I forgot to look it up. But uh, he makes this further explanation. No, compassion and indignation rise together in Jesus' soul. They're not at odds with one another. They rise together. It is the father who loves his daughter most, whose anger arises most fiercely if she is mistreated. If the father's anger is not aroused at his daughter's mistreatment, he has no compassion. Because compassion requires anger. It requires a right kindling at the appropriate moment. That, that would be what I argue for. So then the $10,000 question becomes, what ought to awaken or arouse our anger, arouse our compassion? It will look a little, it will be nuanced. It will look not exactly the same for everybody in every instance. But if I were to throw out a bucket list, it would look things like pain, suffering, injustice, oppression, abuse, human trafficking, the desecration of marriage in our Western culture, the desecration of the two sexes in our Western culture, ecclesiastical abuse and hypocrisy. Our anger shouldn't just be directed out into the world, people that don't even claim Christianity. Our anger ought to be aroused within those that fall, they call themselves Christian and they so abuse the word of God and, and use God's word to exploit money out of people. And if you will sow your seed of faith, and if you will give this much money, you will get this result from God, because God wants everybody healthy, wealthy, and wise. That ought to arouse our anger. And the morality that is, it's fallen through the floor in our culture, you know what? It is a time to speak the truth. In love. Cautiously. Picking the appropriate time. I don't, I'm not saying you need to march out on the street, stop traffic, but somehow the church has got to get It's message out because of our compassion for sinners and those that are exploited and broken in sin and the anger that must accompany it. Because nobody is going to find themselves outside of salvation in Christ. That's the only way somebody will live a satisfied, full, meaningful life because we were created by God. And our hearts will be restless until they find our rest in Him. Um, I think I've got to quit here. I guess we'll deal with uh, the volatility of anger more next week. What are your comments and questions this week? Carrie, and then Sarah. Yeah, yeah. And, and we will, I will not always get that balance right. Jesus did, but that doesn't mean I shouldn't strive for it. And there's times I'm going to err on the side of... Yes, I said something true, but it lacked the right motive. And that's true. Brand Hansen is right. My motivations are always tainted. Uh, I could always disqualify myself from ever being angry because I will never exhibit the righteous anger that Christ did. But there are times I need to make my best effort at being angry at the right things as opposed to it's none of my business. Sarah and then Sonia. Yes. Well, that's really next week. It's several slides in, several slides in. I mean, basically, 
I think, remember when Jesus was reviled and when he was threatened, he did not revile and threaten in return, but he entrusted himself to the one who deals justly. I can be, my anger can be so aroused because there's plenty to have your anger aroused at. But it can, be, it, become, it can become so consuming that it keeps me from trusting in the providence of God, who is, is still all under his control, that though this world, that though this world is off so wrong, God is the ruler yet. This is my father's world. I mean, if it keeps me from trusting in him and recognizing, you know, that's not where the battle is. These, there are people being, that are held captive by sin and all of the consequences of sin. And I need to recognize them as captives to that rather than merely rail against the person who is being held captive by their sin. So I can become so consumed by those things, I lose sight of the gospel, I lose sight of my hope and confidence in the, in the goodness and the providence of God. I think that's what it means. I I kind of doubt that there's, I mean, I kind of doubt that there's, he means for that to be a connection. Ecclesiastes talking about under the sun. I think this is, it's really just keep it in perspective. Like there are things to be angry at. You ought to be angry at some things, but you know what? Believe in a God bigger than your anger and the injustices you see. I think, I think it's, it's meant to keep things in perspective and not let it so consume you that you lose sight of, of more important things. Sonia? It's, to remember that. Yeah. It's, it's not our anger that can produce yeah. any righteousness in a man. And there's verses similar where the Bible says, a vengeance is mine, I will repay, saith the Lord. Like, the, the church's charge isn't to rectify all the wrongs of the world. We need to speak the truth. And we need to be angry at the right things at the right times. But ultimately, God's going to take care of of administering his perfect justice in his perfect way, in his perfect time. Uh, Sarah and then Becca. Oh, yeah, there's great ones. Uh, here's, here's a good one. Uh, Jesus is going to Jerusalem. He's going to be crucified. This is his last trip to Jerusalem. He's, he's slowly making his way to Jerusalem. And, and they're going into a town of the Samaritans. And, and the Samaritans find out Jesus isn't sticking around. He's, he's just passing through. He's on his way to Jerusalem. He's not going to spend time here. And so they don't really roll out the welcome mat. And James and John say, Do you want us to call down fire from heaven? And, you know, tear them up. And Jesus rebukes them. Oh, right. You didn't, you didn't clarify. Oh, oh. Well, let me think about that. It, I, honestly, it's a lot harder to come up with righteous examples of anger than... Jonathan and then Rod and then Becca. I, I, yeah. Yeah. Peter, too. Peter with another magician. Both of them had magician episodes where they... Yeah. 
Peter, Peter told the magician, Simon the sorcerer, maybe, it's the other, maybe that was Paul's, but whoever it was, Peter, Peter basically told him, to hell to you and your money, is what he told him. Yeah. Rod? Great example. Yeah, that's a good example. When Peter played the hypocrite, all of a sudden he just quietly withdrew from the Gentiles and gave the complete wrong impression. Well, that wasn't a personal affront to Paul, but it was an affront to the gospel. I mean, Paul had laid his life out for the gospel. You know, the importance of the gospel, we're saved by grace through faith, not of works, lest any man should boast. And Peter gave the wrong impression, and Paul called him out. Uh, because he had compassion for those that needed the gospel, and his anger was aroused. Rebecca? Yes. Yeah. I've got another quote on there that kind of talks about that, that anger in and of itself, if, if it doesn't if it doesn't produce the appropriate accompanying action, we've missed the point. Let's stand and be dismissed in prayer. Oh, Cindy, did you? Right. We have spheres of influence and, and authority and control where we can make a difference. Other ways we can't, and we have to distinguish the difference. Let's stand and be dismissed in prayer.